0: Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcast app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. What do these things have in common? Missing Barbara Cotton from Williston, North Dakota, USA, a hitman in Italy, secret agents, international crime and 1,500 kilos of heroin seized by police in a Dutch port city. I'll tell you, they're all included in this story about how my Scandinavian vacation became sidetracked by a mysterious drowning and sent me looking for international secrets. Oh, and along the way, I learned a forgotten secret about you, too. And like a whistleblower, I'm going to whistle it in your ear. Even if it gets me cancelled.
1: On the one hand is increased uh, killings, and on the other hand, a lowering of public trust in the media. A toxic environment is being created. The bottom line is, uh, journalists step on some pretty powerful toes in their line of work. And too often, those in power have minimal incentive to investigate.
2: Armed, organized crime, corrupt government, and local warlord.
1: And even though we do not have any real act against this killer because of money. But this is a story that is untold. It, It needs to be told to the world. Because if you lost your humanity, you cannot do anything.
0: Welcome to The Man from Un. music by Vesem Uppsala, Sweden. I'm calling this story The Man from Un, which will make more sense soon enough, I hope. I wanted to dedicate it to all of you long-time listeners. Thank you for being here and for understanding what this podcast is and what it is not mid-project september 2021 something terrible happened one of my closest friends in the whole world passed away at age 56 and so dear longtime listeners please be so generous as to scoot over just a little bit to one side of the stage and share this dedication with my dear friend the late great patrick michael mcdowell
3: I, i i don't know i think uh that's kind of why I got into working with kids in the first place, was to have those kind of experiences.
0: This story, The Man from Un, might be dedicated to an old friend who passed away, but it's about many new friends. In particular, one new friend I will never, ever meet because he is gone too. He is un-here and unalive. Somehow, his life became undone, perhaps canceled in the worst possible sense of the word, with finality by someone, or possibly something bigger than him. But in order to get a chance to never ever meet this new friend, I had to travel to the other side of the world.
1: It was like the first night of their carnival, or whatever, so then we went to that, and
4: then Mark...
0: Um, That's me in the back seat half. of my niece's car, late August, 2021. Yeah. My niece, Jessie is her name, she's at the wheel and her boyfriend Mark is in the passenger seat. We're somewhere near the South Dakota-Minnesota state line on our way to the airport Minneapolis-St. Paul International. Jessie and Mark are in their mid-twenties, so the pavement ahead of them stretches much, much further than it does for me at 56 or something. It's a four-hour drive through first flat plains and farmlands and then... Well, actually still mostly flat, but at least wooded lakeside towns and communities where most mailboxes are marked with names like Larsen and Olsen and Janssen, just like the place I'm about to fly to. On this day I'm headed to Europe, to Sweden, for almost a month, and I can't afford to pay airport parking for almost a month, so I've enlisted Jesse and Mark to get me to Terminal 2, where Iceland Air operate their business, bussing North Americans to Europe and Europeans to North America all via that little plot of volcanic land in the middle of the ocean. Oh, look, it's me. I've made my flight. Mark and Jesse dropped me at the curb. I made my way to the gate, fully masked, fully vaccinated, but in hindsight, only halfway prepared for things to come. The purpose of this trip is to visit my daughters in Sweden. I should say to finally visit them after a pandemic said I couldn't, but it's also to take a much-needed vacation, something I will soon realize I've forgotten how to do. Four months earlier, when I was waist-deep in Season 5, A Better Search for Barbara Cotton, that 15-year-old girl that went missing 40 years ago in North Dakota, USA, I booked this flight for one person, for me, and only me, but look at me now on Iceland Air Flight 656 from Minneapolis to Reykjavik. I've got three seats to myself in row 19, but I'm not by myself. I have an escort or something. Do you also not quite see who I don't quite see? The person clearly not actually sitting in the empty seat next to me. It's our little miss long-gone girl, 15-year-old Barbara Cotton, or at least her stubborn presence and chatter in my mind. Barbara, I say to myself, because, well, what would the other passengers think? Barbara, you are endearing and sweet, but how is it that you are missing for forty years, and yet you sit here anyway? You're missing and yet unmissing, the girl from un. And somehow, for the rest of my flight, Little Miss Long Girl constantly, but I know doesn't actually, sit there in the empty seat next to me. She doesn't actually wake me with a tap on my shoulder, point out the window watch with me as we prepare to land at Iceland's Keflavík airport, doesn't actually answer me when I say, look, longong girl, just look at this place. I love Iceland. I've been there a few times. I think I like it because I can identify with the geography of the place. Iceland is both, and yet neither, both North American and European, and yet somehow sort of un-European and un-North American. Iceland, like me, I feel, belongs where it is, sort of out there in the unbelonging land. Maybe Iceland is the country from Un. But me and my invisible escort won't be staying in Iceland long. This time, in fact, only for an hour, we disembarked and run to catch a connecting flight to Arlanda airport in Sweden. I carry two passports for myself. Barbara doesn't even have a driver's license. Little Miss Long Gone Girl, Barbara Cotton, and I have arrived at the airport in Sweden. Barbara follows me to the luggage carousel and she's with me when I get my bag and pull out my passports and prepare to go through customs. On the other side of that wall, out there somewhere, stands my daughter waiting. She's come to pick me up. I've not seen her since before the pandemic told me to stay away, stay home, and never ever hug. I'm heading towards customs, pulling on my wheeled suitcase when I feel Barbara or something tug on my jacket. I stop and Barbara somehow says goodbye for now. Everything I learned about Barbara Cotton tells me that she is or was far too nice and wise and considerate to follow me past this point. She knows I need a break, and like the late great Patrick McDowell, she does not judge. And like the late great Patrick McDowell, she has done all in her power to escort me to the place she knows I want to be. In this case, the warm embrace of my daughter's hug just on the other side of that door. And so, I leave someone else's missing daughter behind, walk through those doors, and the missing father returns to the arms of his adult daughter, Ingrid. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Dear listener, I said I learned a secret about you. Does that make you nervous? Don't worry, we'll get to that soon, but I will say this now. Maybe you've heard the expression, people are suckers for the truth. It's true, isn't it? I mean, we can't help ourselves. Unanswered questions and mysteries occupy our human minds. Why do we wonder and want to find out an answer or even learn what happens at the end of a story? Are we simply bored and suckers for the truth? Or is there maybe something more deeply rooted in us that knows that we need the truth and like food and fire and air If we lose our freedom to have it, we might just all get canceled forever. We'll return to this perhaps forgotten secret later on. daughter is driving us from the airport, my little Airbnb apartment I rented on Kungsgarten in the beautiful college town of Uppsala, Sweden, a place where I once lived, where an unassuming river named the Furious winds its lazy way first through forests of birch and fir in the Viking belt of Uppland, and then snakes modestly through the small city, past the towering cathedral, a major university, and even a couple of cobblestone streets, all the while flanked by the comings and goings of the quiet residents of Uppsala, young and old, swooshing by on bicycles, moving forward on foot. And one of the first things my older daughter Ingrid and I did was take a walk along the river. And it was here that I learned something new.
2: Actually, Mom found a dead body in the river. She, did? she Yep a couple of years ago when she was living on the houseboat right by the waterfall there. That was in the early spring. Um, and the cop said too, like, no, he's been here a long time. He must have gone through the ice and then stayed under there all winter. And then when spring comes, it floats up.
0: What, my former wife, mother of my children, Christina, had found a corpse in the Feeder's River? I'd never heard this story before. Not that I talk to Christina every day or anything, but still, how often does something like this happen in Uppsala anyway, I wondered. More than once I knew, because I just recently read a story about another man found deceased just last year. And so, of course, later that evening, alone with my jet lag in my Airbnb, after saying, good night, Ingrid, see you tomorrow, I unpacked my bags and then sat down, and, much like you might habitually pick up your smartphone, I looked around the room for Little Miss Long Gone Girl Barbara Cotton, only to be reminded it was just me now. I was alone again, a little bored and unable to sleep in Northern Europe in September, and so with my laptop placed, wait for it, on top of my lap, I spent the midnight hour sifting through a story I'd recently read while the traffic outside my window and the Swedish TV did little to rock me to sleep. The story I wanted to revisit was that of a man who'd been found dead in 2020 in the Fiedris River, just north of town. No, not the same man my ex-wife had discovered. The man I wanted to learn more about was 39-year-old Sajid Hussein. He was found dead in the Furious River on April 23rd, 2020. He had gone missing seven weeks earlier, on March 2nd. They found his body in an area I know fairly well, named after an old mill, a place called Ulbakfarn. Farm. I learned that Sajid was from Pakistan, and he was a writer and a journalist. At the time of his death, he was living in Sweden, I say living, but the actuality was that he was living in exile in Sweden, which is different from just living. Some say living in exile is not a life at all. If you are unclear what living in exile means, well then, consider yourself lucky that you never had to find out, because living in exile simply means being forced to leave your own home, that is, your village or town or province or even your country, often in order to save your life. But in the process, you basically lose everything else. I read that the Swedish police did investigate Sajid's death and concluded that no crime took place. But they didn't say it was an accident, either. In other words, the police in Uppsala offered a type of unanswer. Instead of telling really anything, they said something else between the lines. That Sajid took his own life along the banks of the river Fyrrhus on a cold day in March. At least that's how I interpreted what little public information the Swedish police had coughed up. When a physician or surgeon dies before their time, the universe has dealt us an excruciating heartbreak, not just taking the doctor's life, but also somehow pulling the rug out from under all the lives they would have saved or mended or touched. Thankfully for those future patients, there are often other doctors who can step up to the plate. With the death of a good investigative journalist, something else is stolen from us, sacks of seeds or boxes of unfertilized seeds of truth, which may never see daylight. Yes, like other doctors, there are other reporters, but unlike a human seeking medical attention, The truths hidden in those seeds just sit there in the dark, waiting to die, and eventually, unless another reporter happens to rescue them in time, they do perish. So whenever I hear of a reporter dying too soon, too young, and especially if I'm told they took their own life, I sit up and take note, and I consider, what truths will die with them, and what are the implications of that? And I find myself thinking, I wonder what was in his box of seeds. And this is why I became so interested in a man I never met, a man named Sajid Hussein who lived in exile in Sweden and then died in the river Firis in March of 2020. Why was he living in exile? Did he really take his own life, and if so, why? And how did the police arrive at the determination that no foul play had been involved? It turns out. I wasn't the only one who had these questions, but before I talked to any of those people, I did something myself. I decided I would try to get some answers from the police who investigated Sajid's death. And I was in Sweden, after all, a Western country that celebrates and sometimes totes its strong adherence to democracy, freedom of the press, human rights, and so much other self-declared goodness, I thought, well, I'll just ask the police for whatever records or statements they can release about Sajid's death. Maybe they can't say much, but in a free and open social democratic society like Sweden, certainly asking would be straightforward, right? In the name of the people's right to know. I should also mention that I'm a citizen of Sweden and of the U.S., which explains my doubling down on passports. And I speak the language. So, in other words, if Sweden's open records law has any kind of fine print about the requirements of citizenship, well, I had that covered too, this would be a piece of cake. So the next day, during business hours, on a weekday, boom, web browser, search engine, oops, all the police station, journalists should contact our press persons at either the regional or national level, start with your region. Oops, Sala is in the middle region. Okay, here we go. Here's the number. Ah, wow. I didn't necessarily expect the press contact to answer the phone, but I waited for an opportunity to leave a voicemail and ask for a callback or other avenue to explore getting answers. And then the line just went dead. No voicemail, no answer, no anything. Must be some sort of technical problem today, I thought. Oh, well. I'll call again tomorrow. And meanwhile, I'd learn more about who Sajid was exactly.
3: Sajid Hussain was born on 16th January 1981 in Mand, Balochistan, Pakistan.
0: This is a voice of Karina Jahani, professor of linguistics at Uppsala University, speaking in an online gathering on the one year anniversary of Sajid Hussain's death. Sajid worked for or with Karina and her efforts to preserve the language of Balochi, which is one of the languages spoken in the region where Sajid was born. The province is called Balochistan and is actually located in parts of three countries Pakistan, Iran, and Afghanistan. You will be hearing the following three words a lot in this podcast story Balochistan, which is where Sajid was from, Baloch, the people who live there, the Baloch, and Balochi. The language spoken by the Baloch.
3: He received most of his education in Karachi. He held a BA in economics, but his main interest was literature. And in 2012 he completed an MA in Balochi and English at the University of Balochistan.
0: In 2002, Sajid joined the Baloch Student Organization, which, in addition to organizing Baloch students, also has a political agenda.
3: After a few years, however, he abandoned his political activities and devoted himself increasingly to writing. His English was excellent and he had a flowing pen. He achieved great success as a journalist and before going into exile, he worked for Pakistani newspapers such as Daily Times and The News, as well as for Reuters. His writings covered sensitive topics such as drug trafficking and human rights violations in Balochistan.
0: In other words, Sajid was an investigative journalist, and just for doing his job, we now have the explanation for why he was living in exile in Sweden and not living in his home country at the time of his death.
3: In 2012, he had to flee Pakistan due to threats made against him because of his journalistic activities. He spent some years in Oman, Uganda, and Dubai before coming to Sweden in mid-2017.
0: In 2015, when he was living in Dubai, Sajid founded the online magazine Balochistan Times.
3: This English and Balochi news magazine addresses current issues in Balochistan, including human rights, political violence, abductions and killings, as well as social and cultural issues.
0: Not long after his arrival in Sweden, Sajid got involved with the Balochi language project at Uppsala University. Then in January 2020, about two months before his death, he was admitted to a master's program in Iranian languages at the same department and he began writing his MA thesis on Balochi argument structure.
3: He was busy with this work when on 2nd March 2020 he went missing. On April the 23rd after several weeks of searching he was found drowned in the river Firis, just north of Uppsala. Sajid was a highly motivated, reliable, capable, and talented co-worker who left us far too soon. He was also very kind and gentle, with a big heart for people around him. His passing has left a huge void in the lives of his co-workers and friends.
0: Sajid also had a wife and two children who lived in Pakistan, but were in the final stages of joining him in Sweden.
3: He is survived by his wife, Shainas Sajid, whom he married in 2010, and by his two children, Tahir Baloch, born in 2011, and Shaham Baloch, born in 2015.
0: It's me again in Sweden and I'm sitting at the little kitchen nook in my rented apartment in Uppsala with an old-fashioned flip phone. Look at me sipping coffee and confident that today the police will answer the phone or at least allow me to leave a voicemail, a message like, hey, I just want to know whatever you can release about the death of a fellow journalist, a man who courageously wrote about important issues, then disappeared and then died in water. So, look at me, I'm frustrated and suddenly suspicious. Perhaps it's time to call that national number. But not today, maybe later. Meanwhile, I'd learn more about Sajid's disappearance. What I learned was that on the last day Sajid was seen alive, as planned, he moved out of an apartment he was sharing with a friend in the city of Stockholm and boarded a commuter train to Uppsala, some 60 miles, 100 kilometers to the north. In Uppsala, he got the key to his new apartment. He entered that apartment, put down his belongings, a computer, a suitcase, and then he vanished and was found north of town, in the river, dead seven weeks later. When Sajid opened the door to that new apartment on March 2nd, his life was seemingly in good order. Many of the challenges that people living in exile face are things like finding a job, finding friends, finding a place to live, and of course, missing their family. Sajid had three of those things in place on that day, and the fourth was on the way. He had a new place to live in Uppsala. He had a new job working on something meaningful to him, the Balochi language with Karina Yahani at Uppsala University, and he had friends, people we will soon meet here in this story. And finally, the legal requirements to get Sajid's wife and kids to Sweden from Pakistan, to join him, were all becoming finalised. On paper, things seemed to be going great for this man living in exile. But I learned that living in exile is extremely difficult.
1: It's hard to explain, uh, especially if I talk about my feelings. If I, I'm unhappy here. I'm not happy at all. If I had the least chance to live in Balochistan, I would never leave it.
0: This is Malab, one of Saja's closest friends during his time in Sweden. She too fled Pakistan and now lives in exile in Sweden. She's a writer and a poet. Soon after she fled Pakistan, her father had a stroke and died.
1: He was the best person in my life. I couldn't go back to see him. And he, I, they, uh, like, I never saw him again since I left. My husband divorced me. I was with a special child running from one place to another to save my life and to save my child's life. I, I had a career there. I was earning, I was, I was loved, I was known that I, and like within within days, everything finished for me. Who would choose it? Nobody would, no one would ever do that.
0: We will hear much more from Malab later. And so I thought, maybe it is that simple. Maybe life in exile was too much for him. Maybe Sajid did take his own life. And yet there was a nagging feeling. I mean, his work writing about issues in a place like Balochistan, Pakistan. The fact that he had to flee from Pakistan and once abroad, he started an online newspaper writing about human rights issues back home. That made me wonder if something else wasn't the root cause of his death. And I wasn't the only person who wondered. I decided I should talk to Sajid's friends and others who could explain to me more about Sajid's situation, Pakistan and Balochistan. So, look at me now. I've left the quaint college town of Uppsala for a week, and I'm on the subway in Sweden's capital city of Stockholm, where my other daughter lives. We spend our time together eating lots of takeout sushi and watching old episodes of The Office. We've practically memorized the dialogue. And when jetting around Stockholm on public transportation, I'm surprised at my own muscle memory. I can still skirt around the subway system without looking at a map. I know which stairway or escalator is the quickest route on my left or my right, and I zip around the subway stations. In some ways, it feels like I never left. On this day, I'm headed to see a man named Erik Halgier, so I jump off at the station Rådmansgatan.
2: <laughs>
0: Erik Halkjer is the chairman of the Swedish office of an organization called Reporters Without Borders. He had suspicions, or at least concerns, that Sajid might have met with foul play,
2: Yes, I'm the chairman of Reporters Without Borders, uh, the Swedish section. Uh, We have several sections in in different countries, so uh, I'm, I'm the responsible here in Sweden.
0: Reporters Without Borders was founded in the 80s in France. It started out there, but soon grew into a global organization with offices in 10 countries, including the United States.
2: But parallel with this whole global organization, which the head office in Paris, there are actually more independent sections in Sweden, Finland, uh, Austria, Spain, Germany and Switzerland.
0: Most recently, with the turn of events in Afghanistan, the Stockholm office has been assisting to rescue journalists to safety.
2: Uh, we have helped journalists to evacuate from the country. We are trying to help journalists in the country.
0: One day last spring, Eric received a phone call from Karina Jahani. The professor of linguistics where Sajid worked. Sajid was still missing at the time.
2: And she asked me what we could do about this, and I was first very sort of taken aback. I said, what, what are you saying? Is, is there a foreign journalist who have been killed or disappeared in in Sweden? And then she explained, and I understood he had disappeared, and, and uh, of course it was a serious case, so we looked into it, and we uh, talked to, to the police and also to this organization called Missing Persons, who look helped the police to look for missing persons. And it was very clear that he had disappeared from his home in Uppsala. Uh, and uh, quite early, I made statements towards the police saying that you should investigate the connection to Pakistan and the the foreign or the, the Pakistani military intelligence service because we know that Pakistani journalists abroad have been harassed and also um, they've been under surveillance and harassed from this uh, from Pakistan. Of course we don't have any proof we actually we have proof, we have a list uh, that we have uh, our office in Paris have a list which is supposedly from the military intelligence service in Pakistan with a list of journalists that, that they are that, that are under surveillance in Europe. Uh, Sajid Hussein was not that on that list. But we, So we know that the, the, the intelligence service are actually having their focus and, and their eyes on these exiled journalists. So we ask the police to, to look into this, and they, that it might be a connection. We also in Sweden have reports on Iranian journalists, exiled journalists from Iran, who have, they get phone calls and messages from the Iran military intelligence service saying that now we have taken in your mother or your sister to interrogation just so you know so it's sort of a way to just tell them that we know what you're doing and we could put your family into in jail anytime we want and it's more or less similar those are the similarities between Pakistan and Iran that's how they operate that they they try to harass exiled journalists abroad through their families in the country so you can never as a journalist exiled never really be at ease and feel secure, because you know that you always will be responsible for your family back home. In in the case of Sajid Hussein, he's a journalist from Balochistan, the part of of Pakistan, uh, where there is a a long story of independence uh, uh, struggle. And uh, in his newspaper, the Balochistan Times, uh, he often highlighted this struggle and he let different voices speak about this struggle. The, the regime in Pakistan is, is uh, suppressing or trying to, to silence the critics and opposition in Balochistan. So at the time he needed to, to flee. And then he came to Sweden and he was trying to also get his family to come to, to Sweden.
0: I have read that he his wife had been to the Swedish embassy. She was working on coming here like it was in the in the process
2: that's that's what makes this whole story so uh, because of course an obvious i mean he disappeared and then they found his body in the river in Uppsala, and you would say maybe spontaneously maybe he didn't want it to live any longer. But we also know that he, the day he disappeared was the first day he got his apartment. He got the keys to his new apartment. He had gotten just recently a, a new job at the university. And as we understand, the process to bring his family to Sweden was more or less it was done deal. It was, he was, they were about to come. So this, this made this whole thing very suspicious. Uh, but then of course it's impossible for us to know exactly about his personal life And his, uh, but, but uh, we all have to remember that they have fled from an area with the conflict and human rights abuses and they carry all this with them you still carry this baggage with you and the, and the struggle, your, your friends your family are living all these things that you fled from still so of course it's have to remember that many of these exiled journalists and activists, they might be safe physically, but not psychologically.
0: So, what are we saying here? Possibly suicide, but also that the state of Pakistan might be silencing journalists abroad? By the way, that doesn't mean that a Pakistani agent has to come to Sweden to get this done.
2: Uh, and this is also f- important to understand that, of course, there won't be a, a, an agent from the country's military service want to travel to to Sweden to do it, the, it themselves. I mean, we have these the, the cases in in Great Britain, in the UK, with the Russian agents poisoning people, and apparently those were agents, but it also seemed very sloppy the whole job. But but. Uh, uh, of course you will use middlehand
0: in other words hired contractors hit men Can you explain what kind of how you were received by the Swedish police
2: when you suggested this? I would say that they took it pretty serious but it took them like a week or two to make to, to get this on paper and, and, and in, in there then I, I have actually no idea what they did with this if they went through with it but as I understood, if you want to in, investigate this this lead, the prosecutor needs to talk to a prosecutor in in Pakistan, and and there right away you use But I just told you that it might be the military service who is involved. Do you think the prosecutors will help you?
0: I asked Eric what other groups besides the intelligence service of Pakistan might benefit from Sajid's death.
2: In Baluchistan, yeah, I mean, there is a. Several uh, groups, armed groups, fighting for independence, and you also have a huge uh, problem with uh, narcotics, similar to the states of Mexico. I would say the border to Pakistan is to towards Afghanistan. So we have a, a long border with opium trade uh, and and trafficking of arms, people. I guess Baluchistan is a, is a mixture of armed political fighters, armed organized crime uh, uh, and a corrupt government and local warlords. To be a journalist there and to to write and report on all of these issues is dangerous. What would you say? Uh, I was just thinking like, so we don't know where they found him and I'm... My thoughts before, I'd
3: assumed it was, like, in the river. But I just feel like, what if we found him in, like, something like this? It would make more sense that a body would get caught up in here.
0: That's me and my daughter Ingrid walking in the area where Sajid's body was found because, well, you might say we're suckers for the truth and can't help ourselves. But how is your curiosity treating you right now? We've got speculations so far about what happened to Sajid. Maybe suicide maybe he was silenced. But my daughter and I are even more curious now because we've learned something. We know something you likely don't, so it's time I told you. It's time I told you about a woman named Karima Baloch. Karima Baloch was a celebrated human rights activist from Pakistan. She campaigned for the independence of Balochistan from Pakistan and protested human rights violations there, including the disappearance of reportedly thousands of people. Just like Sajid Hussain, she had to flee Pakistan. She found exile in the country of Canada. In 2016, she was included in the BBC's list of 100 most inspirational and influential women of that year. Eight months after Sajid's body was found in the Furious River in Sweden, the Balochian community abroad and at home in Pakistan were shocked to learn that Karima Baloch had been found dead in water in Toronto. According to her husband, she'd been receiving death threats.
1: The local police found her body drowning off an island... Just Just
0: like in Sajid's case, the police say no foul play.
1: ...to take refuge in Canada has been found dead. But the Toronto police says there is no foul play.
0: Although apparently death by drowning is one of the hardest causes of death to pinpoint as a murder. And then, dear listener, there is this other thing that I learned on this journey. Sajid Hussain, the chief editor of Balochistan Times, reporting on human rights issues in Pakistan, and Karima Baloch, the celebrated and outspoken Pakistani woman with a loud and critical voice, they were friends. In fact, I was told they had met as recently as 2019 in a small apartment somewhere in the middle of Sweden to discuss the situation in Balochistan. So... My daughter and I decided to drive to that small apartment and learn more. Dear listener, maybe you're wondering why my daughter and I have gone looking for answers at an apartment in the middle of Sweden. Remember I said I learned a secret about you? Well, here it is. You, too, are an agent. We all are, but in recent years it feels like we've forgotten what our mission is. We are agents of the truth, at least that's what one philosopher says, and I promise not to take you on a long philosophical tangent here, but I will take 90 seconds to frame up this idea and suggest that if we fail at our mission to always identify and demand the truth, we won't make it much longer. No matter if you live in Williston, North Dakota, or manned Pakistan, or Uppsala, Sweden. Whatever freedoms you may enjoy now are potentially at risk, and it's up to you to save your world. You are an agent of the truth. Your mission to always find and demand and honor the truth. Robert Sokolowski is the Elizabeth Breckenridge Caldwell professor of philosophy in his book, The Phenomenology of the Human Person, he argues that being a person means being involved with the truth. It's a philosophical argument in which he suggests that we can only be happy as persons if we cultivate what he calls veracity. Sokolovsky proposes that veracity is not a virtue, but rather something that is with us from the very beginning. It's the desire for the truth, and it's something that specifies us as human beings. He writes... Failing to develop our veracity is not just one of the ways that we can be unsuccessful as human beings, it is the way in which we fail and make ourselves false, that is unreal. Or as I might say, failing to find and demand the truth will turn us into the unreal, unhappy and unfree, the people or country from un. Try this, think back to a time when you watched a politician lie blatantly to the people they represent. How did you feel at that moment? Sokolovsky might say that your reaction is rooted in your desire to be happy as a person and that the politician was not just stating an untruth, but also attacking your veracity, your very definition or purpose of living. Sajid Hussein was a journalist. Journalism is sometimes referred to as the fourth pillar or branch of a democracy. Here in the United States, we may need a House and a Senate, a president and advisors, and then judges and the courts to keep our democracy safe. But who keeps an eye on them? Who is the watchdog for the people when it comes to protecting a democracy from potential corruption within? The answer is the press, journalism. Perhaps the image of Sajid's lifeless and decaying body floating in the furious river north of Uppsala should be seen as much more than just his flesh and bones. Perhaps it's a precognition, a glimpse of what a society or democracy will look like if we stop asking questions, if we allow others to hide and erode the truth, if we fail at our mission. In the rest of this podcast, I want to share with you the things I did and things I learned in an attempt to put Sajid and Karima's deaths into perspective. Remember the list of exiled journalists that Reporters Without Borders got a hold of? I spoke with a person who is on that list and is currently living in exile in an undisclosed location. I also spoke with a Pakistani blogger, also in an undisclosed location. Sajid Hussein had met him too. British and Dutch police recently stopped a hitman from killing him. I also met with Sajid's mentor or boss at Uppsala University, Karina Jahani. But first of all, my daughter and I traveled to that apartment in the middle of Sweden, The place where Sajid and Karima had last met a few months before they both died in water. Coming up in the next episode of The Man from UN. On the
1: one hand is increased uh, killings and, on the other hand, a lowering of public trust in the media. A toxic environment is being created. The bottom line is uh, journalists step on some pretty powerful toes in their line of work. and Too often those in power have minimal incentive to investigate, let alone pursue justice. And even though we do not have any real act against this killer because of money, but this is a story that is untold. It, it needs to be told to the world. First responsibly, all of us being human beings. Because if you lost your humanity, you cannot do anything.
0: Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wallner. Music in this story, The Man from Un provided generously by Vassen of Uppsala, Sweden. That's V-A with two dots over the A, -A S-E-N, V-A-S-E-N, two dots over the A. Check them out on Spotify. Thank you, Vassen, for your amazing music.